Chapter 15 of The Gladstone Colony, an unwritten chapter of Australian history by James Francis Hogan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. The Gladstone of Today. Resuming the regular course of events in the history of the Gladstone Colony, the first incident deserving of record was the speedy revival and rapid recovery of the place after the very serious blow to its orderly progress and prosperity inflicted by the great gold rush. That blow was of a twofold character. Not only was the town of Gladstone emptied of nearly all its able-bodied inhabitants, but during the closing weeks of the rush a new town and a formidable rival sprang into existence at the head of the navigation of the Fitzroy River, about ninety miles to the north. This new town, Rockhampton, although possessing none of the natural advantages with which Gladstone had been so liberally endowed, nevertheless went ahead at a much more rapid rate, and has ever since bulked so largely in the eyes of the outer world as to throw the older and more historic settlement somewhat in the shade. But Gladstone, although prostrated for a season by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, was too favourably circumstanced to remain recumbent and depressed for any length of time, and, as a matter of fact, the year following the collapse of the great gold rush, found the little town once more upon its legs and ready to start upon a fresh career. A number of the old inhabitants had returned, in the penitential mood of the prodigal son, sturdy young recruits, impressed by the attractions and probable future importance of the place, commenced to come in. Trade and commerce began to revive. Ships and steamers were again seen in the beautiful and commodious harbour, and Gladstone entered on a career of progress and prosperity that has never since been interrupted, and which now bids fair to be crowned with the full fruition of its early hopes and aspirations. It is only fair to add that whilst Gladstone as a town received a rude and serious shock from the great gold rush, the district generally may be said to have benefited on the whole by the unprecedented incursion of invading diggers from the south. The immediate connection between the rush to Port Curtis and the subsequent settlement and prosperous development of the district is clearly established by Mr. Booth. Reader's note, there's a footnote here, to Australia Illustrated, by Edwin Carton Booth, volume 2, page 167. Reader's note ends. He points out that among the thousands who came to search for gold, there were many who looked beyond the failure of the immediate object of their quest. Affairs in the southern colonies at the time were not particularly bright or promising. Speculation and over-trading had been accompanied or followed by disaster, and many of those who had joined in the rush felt that their energies must find vent and employment in other directions than the colonies they had left. The natural riches of the new land, the lack of gold notwithstanding, were too palpable to be overlooked. The old settlers were few and far between, but they had prospered and therefore a considerable number of the newcomers made up their minds to enter into that prosperity. Many of them were entirely destitute of means, and few indeed were possessed of sufficient money to enable them to settle in a country where horses, cattle, and sheep constituted the chief classes of property, but they had colonial experience, a valuable commodity when properly applied. After a desultory sort of survey, sufficiently minute, however, to take in all the requisite features of the new country, Numbers of this class of adventurers returned to the south, where they told the story of the new land around Port Curtis, with the result that soon sheep and cattle stations were being taken up in all directions. Stock was carried to the new settlements by every possible means. The mere spending of the money requisite to carry out the plans of the day was a pleasant operation. Those who had borrowed the means to make a fresh start in life were perhaps the happiest of all, 
but the new chums who had brought money with them also enjoyed a merry time it was a joyous life seeking pastures new by the banks of beautiful rivers on the pleasant plains and still more pleasant hillsides many travelled from victoria and new south wales overland driving their sheep and cattle before them to stock new stations in the north numbers who had made money in business had grown rich in the southern cities also took up new country in the north being desirous of enrolling themselves into the colonial aristocratic caste of the squatters as settlement increased townships assumed an importance and prospered beyond the most sanguine dreams of their first inhabitants cotton soon began to be cultivated on a considerable scale and another profitable investment was found in the growth and manufacture of sugar mr e c booth gives an excellent picture of the gladstone of twenty years ago in his australia illustrated readers note footnote volume two page two hundred and two readers note ends he describes it as a settlement that is sure to grow he recommends english emigrants who while desirous of making new homes in the great south land still wish to retain the pleasing characteristics of the english country town of the old type to settle in gladstone which he adds deserves to be a cathedral city if only because of its intense respectability in eighteen fifty nine the town came prominently before the public both in the home and colonial press in connection with the question of the capital of the newly created colony of queensland the choice was practically limited to two candidates brisbane and gladstone it was undeniable that gladstone by reason of its central position its superb and capacious harbour its promising future its interesting personal and historical associations and the variegated resources of the surrounding district had the weight of argument on its side and presented superior claims to metropolitan distinction but vested interests and seniority of foundation operated in favour of brisbane and secured the prize sir george ferguson bowen the first governor of queensland visited gladstone shortly after his arrival in the colony and received an address of welcome from its citizens in the course of his reply the governor remarked quote, the beauty of the scenery around your town and the excellence of its harbour almost unrivalled on the eastern coasts of australia render it worthy of the eloquent statesman whose name it bears and who first projected a settlement on the shores of port curtis End quote. writing to the duke of newcastle on the fourth of december eighteen sixty sir george bowen described port curtis as probably the best harbour after sydney on the eastern coast of australia the government of new south wales had founded on its shores a township which had been named gladstone and had become the outlet of the adjacent pastoral counties of pelham and clinton the excellence of the harbour the salubrity of the climate and the beauty of the surrounding scenery combined to render gladstone an eligible site for a flourishing town but the river fitzroy further north afforded a more ready access to the interior of the colony and consequently the settlement of rockhampton on its banks had advanced more rapidly than gladstone on the eighteenth of october eighteen sixty five sir george bowen wrote a very interesting letter to mr gladstone giving an account of his second viceregal visit to the town that had grown up on the site of the intended capital of the colony of north australia quote, you will probably feel some interest wrote sir george in the condition and progress of the beautifully situated town in queensland of which you are the godfather i venture therefore to enclose a copy of the address presented to me on my recent official tour of inspection to the northern districts of this colony including an address from the mayor of gladstone and another from the miners on the neighbouring goldfields 
you will see that in my reply to the mayor of your town i quoted from a speech recently delivered by you at liverpool the present mayor of gladstone is proud of being also a lancashire man i have just returned from a cruise of two thousand miles all in the waters of queensland i was received with great cordiality at every seaport especially by the gladstonians and also by the diggers on the goldfields in the vicinity who invited me to a public banquet given in a large tent in the centre of the diggings the dinner wines and speeches were all equally good you are doubtless aware that australian gold mining has now become a regular pursuit without the recklessness and turbulence of former years the deputation of the mining body who had been elected by their fellows to act as my hosts were all evidently men of sense and education i am confident that you will also learn with interest that the queensland parliament on my recommendation has adopted those acts which you have recently passed through the imperial parliament for the improvement and extension of the government savings banks and for the granting of annuities and life assurances on the security of the public revenue and for ameliorating in other ways the condition of the working classes you will see from the enclosed copy of my prorogation speech that i alluded to this subject in closing the session for eighteen sixty five from the concluding paragraph of the same speech you will learn the wonderfully rapid but solid progress of queensland during the six years of my administration End quote. gladstone was formally incorporated on the first of february eighteen sixty three and has ever since been governed in all its local concerns by its own mayor and board of aldermen ample and prudent provision was made at the time for the probabilities of future growth and expansion with commendable sagacity and foresight and a prophetic inkling of what the requirements of the city of gladstone were likely to be before the close of the nineteenth century the municipal boundaries were so arranged as to enclose an area of eight and a half square miles the gladstone of today is a bright busy and beautifully situated town occupying for the most part an extensive sloping terrace near the mouth of the river boyne and commanding a glorious prospect of the blue waters of port curtis dotted with numerous richly grassed islands one of which by the way curtis island was the scene of the early married life of one of the most popular of contemporary anglo-australian novelists mrs campbell prayed mr prayed a relative of winthorpe mackworth prayed the poet who won the chancellor's prize medal at cambridge in eighteen twenty three for the best poem on australia was an australian squatter and curtis island constituted one of his runs the station homestead looking over the lovely creamy beach and across the sunlit waters of the harbour of gladstone was his favourite residence the background of the town is supplied by a succession of picturesque ranges with the crowning peak of mount stanley from the summit of which one of the finest scenic panoramas in the southern hemisphere is to be viewed dense forests of valuable timber are to be discerned in various directions smiling grain fields and thriving orchards afford frequent glimpses of peaceful content and steady industry and looking over the town beneath and the harbour beyond the white-capped waves of the pacific may be traced for many a mile while the musical murmur of the billows as they strike the sounding shore falls pleasingly on the ear ever since its foundation the exportation of cattle and horses has been one of the leading industries of gladstone a return prepared by mr henry friend senior the stock inspector and oldest identity of gladstone shows that during the past thirty years there have been exported from gladstone to great britain india new caledonia new zealand melbourne sydney and batavia cattle horses and sheep 
to an aggregate value exceeding a quarter of a million with the completion of railway communication to all parts of the interior this trade must necessarily experience a very appreciable development a commencement has already been made with the direct shipment of livestock from gladstone to england but whether this is destined to become a permanent and profitable industry will depend upon the amount of success attained in surmounting the difficulties and drawbacks incidental to the long sea voyage of twelve thousand miles the hon henry stuart littleton son of lord hatherton speaking from an experience of many years as a residential queensland squatter recently gave it as his opinion that if suitable boats were specifically built for this trade so as to obviate the rolling the loss in transit would be extremely small and the live cattle trade between gladstone and england could be made a success a demand for australian live cattle has lately sprung up in south africa and as the cape is only half the distance to england gladstone is not unlikely to find a new and profitable customer in that quarter mr j y foot for many years manager of the gladstone branch of the australian joint stock bank wrote a few months ago quote, i am of the opinion that gladstone is the finest natural port of australia fairly equal to sydney harbour so far as commercial utility for shipping is concerned for shipment of horses and cattle to india and europe it possesses advantages far before any other australian port as a recent instance a steamer of five thousand five hundred tons entered the harbour moored alongside the government jetty and in thirty-six hours proceeded to india with six hundred horses shipped on board from gladstone brisbane to the south and rockhampton to the north have hitherto been formidable rivals by reason of their railways into the interior but now that the government has undertaken the extension of the main trunk line to gladstone virtually making that city the northern terminus i consider no part of australia likely to make quicker strides toward a phenomenal progress than gladstone notwithstanding its unfortunate early experiences in the matter of the pursuit and discovery of the precious metal gladstone has the distinction of being the first goldfield gazetted by the government of queensland or to be strictly correct one of its environs calliope is the oldest goldfield in the colony and its auriferous resources are not yet exhausted the latest report of the mining department of queensland containing information brought down to the end of eighteen ninety five states the yield for the year from all the lines on the gladstone goldfields at eight thousand two hundred and forty six tons of stone which produced seven thousand one hundred and seventy nine ounces of gold of the total value of twenty five thousand one hundred nineteen pounds in addition to these results of crushings of auriferous stone alluvial gold to the amount of one thousand four hundred and seventy four ounces was found in the vicinity of gladstone during the same period it is alleged on the authority of the mining department that quote, alluvial deposits are widely scattered over the gladstone district and they should give employment to a number of men for years to come in anything like normal seasons end quote. The number of miners on the Gladstone fields at the end of 1895 was reported to be 1,137 whites and 66 Chinese. Of the former, it is officially recorded that they are, quote, as a rule, married men settled down and adverse to leading a nomadic life, end quote. This contented disposition being credited to two favouring circumstances, the exceptional healthiness of the climate and the proximity of the fields to the principal centres of population it is suggested in the report that the dredging of the river boyne in the gladstone district would reveal rich discoveries having regard to the large area of gold-bearing country traversed by that stream and its tributaries a few miles to the west of gladstone excellent coal has been discovered and worked 
and the report of the assistant government geologist leaves little room to doubt that the seams are of the most valuable and permanent character. Another field of mineral activity is thus referred to in the report of the department. Quote, there are a number of manganese mines in the Gladstone district, but a limited market operates against their development. The one situated at Auckland Hill, not very far from the town, exported about 300 tonnes of ore, principally for the use of the chlorination works of the Mount Morgan mine. End quote. There is a large auriferous belt in the Raglan district, in the immediate neighbourhood of Gladstone, and nuggets of considerable size and value have been discovered there from time to time. But this, in common with most of the fields in the locality, demands systematic development and the assistance of outside capital. The cultivation of sugarcane is now extensively carried on in the Gladstone district. Farmers find a very satisfactory profit in cultivating comparatively small areas and bringing the produce to a central mill. Dairy farming is also an important industry, the country around Gladstone being remarkable for its rich grasslands. Socially, the town of Gladstone is well supplied with the institutions and agencies that are characteristic of the progressive colonial centre. The Anglicans, Catholics and Presbyterians have erected commodious churches for the accommodation of their respective adherents. The Gladstone Hospital is an admirably constructed institution and deservedly occupies a noble site. The School of Arts, with its library and reading room, furnishes the colonial equivalent to the polytechnic palaces of the old land. For the Gladstonians, who are less inclined to reading, study and self-education, the Musical and Dramatic Club, the Racing Club, the Cricket Club, and various other organisations devoted to recreation and sport are available. The Pastoral Society of Gladstone is a strong and influential body, thoroughly representative of the staple industry of the district. A number of friendly and benefit societies have flourishing branches or lodges in Gladstone, and the Queensland Government is represented in the town by a resident magistrate, a Goldfields Warden, a collector of customs, postal, telegraphic and various other officials. The increasing demand for hotel accommodation has contributed some superior structures to the town, and preparations for further improvement and expansion in this direction are in progress. There is considerable coaching activity in the streets of Gladstone, vehicles running regularly to and fro between the town and various goldfields within a radius of 60 miles. The harbour is well supplied with piers and jetties. The principal one, named the Victoria Pier, by Governor Sir Anthony Musgrave, providing 26 feet of water at the lowest tide. The leading local newspaper is the Gladstone Observer, a well-conducted and enterprising journal that has for many years ably advocated and represented the interests of what it described, in its prospectus, with pardonable pride as the premier port of the colony of Queensland. It recently issued a special edition of 50,000 copies, avowedly to advertise the capabilities and resources of Gladstone, and present outsiders with a faithful picture of what the district is like. Merchants attract trade and build up gigantic businesses by advertising their wares, and we believe many Australian towns would likewise be built up if their inhabitants adopted a similar method of bringing their locality under the public ken. The practice has often been resorted to in America with wonderful success, many of the large American cities being monuments of the enterprise of capitalists, who selected the sites and placed the advantages of settlement so clearly before the public that towns sprang into being with astonishing rapidity. We are not vain enough to imagine that a single effort will have so magical an effect on Gladstone, but it is palpable that an issue of 50,000 copies of a newspaper, distributed amongst the leading businessmen and capitalists of Australia, must attract a certain amount of attention to this locality.
as to a reason for making this special effort to bring gladstone into prominence the observer pointed out that when the railway communication with the south and west was completed gladstone would be sure to develop into a very important shipping and commercial centre then quote, the magnificent harbour of port curtis will be connected by rail with every important coastal town in australia and gladstone will speedily take its position not only as the port of central queensland but as the most important maritime town in the colony for its harbour is excelled only by port jackson on the australian seaboard in proof of this assertion the report of mr w d nisbet the government engineer for harbours and rivers is quoted quote, as regards the anchorage in the harbour i was especially struck with its extent apparent permanence and security in all winds i find it possesses an area of at least three thousand acres with a depth of five fathoms and upwards at low water after allowing a good deep water channel up through the centre this would accommodate five hundred of the largest class of vessels riding with double anchors as usually moored in harbours or two hundred to two hundred and fifty moored to allow the full swing of the cable as in open roadsteads there may be said therefore to be no practical limit to the accommodation the harbour will afford for vessels of the very largest class owing to its accessibility at all times and excellent deep-water berthage i consider it the most eligible calling-place on that part of the coast for large mail and other steamers not going up to rockhampton and requiring rapid dispatch the harbour is capable of affording the utmost convenience for landing and discharging passengers and cargo putting coals stores and provisions on board and if need be for effecting repairs and it appears to me that with proper arrangements the requirements of such vessels may be met with the greatest certainty and regularity the chief reason why gladstone had not progressed in proportion to the extent of its great natural advantages is traced by the observer writer to the absence of facilities for land transit but the railways in course of construction will he says quote, put a new face on the old order of things the district is largely peopled with land selectors gladstone is also surrounded with numerous cattle stations there is no place in australia where fruit is so easily grown and available for export on so large a scale there is in fact ample scope for development in many directions and that development must take place when we are placed in direct railway communication with the southern capitals the leading merchants and exporters of cattle in gladstone are messrs h and j friend sons of the original founder of the business the mr henry friend senior already alluded to this gentleman is the patriarch of gladstone and a very old and respected colonist he sailed from southampton with his wife and two children in july eighteen fifty four landed in sydney on the seventh of november experienced some of the vicissitudes of fortune on the turin goldfield and came to gladstone towards the close of eighteen fifty five to assist in the construction of a reservoir working as a labourer at ten shillings a day when the reservoir was completed he made up his mind to settle down in gladstone and started business as a storekeeper on a modest scale with each succeeding year the business became more and more prosperous until eventually the present extensive stores and large wharfage accommodation had to be provided chiefly in order to cope with the ever-increasing consignments of wool sent down to gladstone from the squatters stations for export to europe and america another old resident is mr william kirkpatrick whose acquaintance with gladstone covers a period of close on half a century Quote, when i first arrived in gladstone he writes me there was but one house in the place worthy of the name it was built of saplings and bark on the rise above the cattle yards mr r e palmer was building a store on the ridge where the present courthouse stands 
Sir Maurice O'Connell, the government resident, subsequently purchased the building from Mr. Palmer and converted it into a courthouse. When I first came to Gladstone, the only fresh water available was at what was then called the Police Creek, whence it was brought to the little town by drays. A young man was killed off one of those water drays and was buried at Barney Point, where his tombstone may still be seen. It bears the inscription, Underneath this stone are deposited the remains of Thomas Miller Stratford Rydell, oldest son of the acting Colonial Secretary of New South Wales and Mrs Rydell. He was born at Sydney on the 22nd of January 1832 and died at Port Curtis on the 16th of September 1854, aged 22 years. Lieutenant Lestrange of HMS Torch, who was killed by the blacks, was also buried at Barney Point by the side of Mr Rydell's son. Colonel Barney first landed on Facing Island and afterwards established his headquarters at Barney Point, but he did not remain long, and when he returned to Sydney, he said no white people could live at Port Curtis. The party headed by Sir Maurice O'Connell also landed at Barney Point in March 1854, and shortly afterwards Governor Sir Charles Fitzroy visited the settlement in the Torch Man of War. On Christmas Day 1855, the blacks killed all hands on Mount Larkham, destroyed the stores, and drove away all the sheep. In the same year, we had a visit from a geologist named Stutchbury and two assistants. He was sent out by the Royal Geological Society of England to report on the minerals of Australia. He discovered gold at the back of the town of Gladstone. That was the first gold found in this part of the country. But the news was kept very quiet at the time, so Maurice O'Connell did not wish it to be made public. Towards the end of 1857, a party was formed in Gladstone to prospect for gold in the neighbourhood of Gracemere Station. Old Chapel found golden quartz at the back of Dungree on the Don Watershed, and then came the great rush from all parts to Port Curtis. When the first shearing took place on Marionvale Station, the blacks rushed the place, speared one of the partners in the neck, and killed one of the shearers. Next year they killed two shepherds on the same station. The surveyor who laid out the town of Gladstone was Mr McCabe. Early in Sir Maurice O'Connell's time, the settlement ran short of provisions, and we had to live on rice for six weeks until the New South Wales government sent HMS Torch with a cargo of flour to our relief. The Albion, Captain Hardy, arrived at Gladstone shortly afterwards with a general cargo, and then there was no further danger of famine. Another old resident of Gladstone writes, quote, Colonel Barney's visit was short and somewhat inglorious. Sir Maurice O'Connell acted as government resident until separation came and the new colony of Queensland was created. The country in those days was wild and infested by wild blacks, or miles, as they were called. I think one of the most exciting incidents of Sir Morris's administration was the murder of all hands, with the single exception of a black boy, on Mount Larkham Station by the miles. It was a thrilling incident, but perhaps not more so than many other outrages that occurred in the pioneering days of what was then called the Northern Territory. Not the least important feature of Sir Morris O'Connell's administration was the survey of the squatter's runs in the Port Curtis district. There is a tradition that Sir Morris had a very knowing horse called Jerry. Sir Morris used to fix his starting point and allow Jerry to measure the distance, one hour's journey being reckoned at four miles. So regular and reliable was Jerry that he was never known to be a hundred yards out in the four miles, and as a mile or two of country did not matter much in those days, no difficulties arose from this rough and ready mode of surveying, and fixing the boundary lines of the squatter's stations. End quote. Addressing the members of the Royal Colonial Institute on the 12th of April, 1881, Mr. Thomas Archer recalled his impressions and experiences of the Gladstone district in the early 40s. 
The population in those old times, he said, consisted of a few squatters or pastoral tenants of the crown, their scattered servants, about a dozen storekeepers and publicans, and half a dozen government officials. Those were the times when the squatter ranged at will over the face of the land, turning into profit for the community, and occasionally for himself, vast tracts of country that had lain waste and desolate since creation, and would, but for him, have probably continued so for a long time to come. For it was an axiom in the history of Australian settlement that in the interior the squatter, or pastoralist, must precede the settler, or agriculturalist. The reasons for this were not far to seek. Agricultural produce was so bulky and heavy in proportion to its value that it could not be grown profitably when it had to be sent over long and often difficult roads to market, where there was no population on or near the place of production to consume it, and no railways or navigable rivers to carry the produce to market, the cost of carriage must inevitably prove fatal to any chance of profitable farming, and these conditions unfortunately obtained in the far interior of Australia. The principal articles produced on a grazing station were, on the contrary, comparatively easily brought to market. Wool could be compressed into small bulk in proportion to its value and weight, and was easily handled and carried, while beef, mutton, hides and tallow had the advantage of walking to market on their own legs at a comparatively trifling cost to the producer. In those early times the squatter was his own explorer, his own surveyor, his own road and bridge-maker, his own carrier, and too often his own shepherd, cook, bullock-driver and laundress. Transportation had suddenly ceased. Immigration was in its infancy, labour was scarce, dear, and bad. Consequently, no kind of employment save one was considered infradig. The blight of gentility had not then spread over the surface of society like a canker, destroying everything like manly independence. The only exception to this liberal code was keeping a public house. The line had to be drawn somewhere, and it was drawn there. If a gentleman stooped to this degrading occupation, he was ruthlessly sent to Coventry. Many an Eton or Harrow schoolboy and university man had to strip off his coat, turn up his sleeves, and submit to the most servile, but salutary, labours, realising that he who would have a faithful, interested, and attached servant should serve himself. Much good the lesson did them. In those times there was no paternal government to open the way for the squatter, to direct his steps through the wilderness, and to tax him. Crown Lands Commissioners reigned over districts as large as three or four English counties, and a ten-pound licence fee, with an almost nominal assessment, was all the direct taxation to which he was liable. But all that was now changed, and cultivation, civilization, taxes, matrimony, and intense respectability reigned supreme in regions where they were but little known in the good old days. Mr. Archer added this interesting reference to his relations with the blacks when he was a pioneer settler in the Gladstone country. Quote, the simple truth is that Providence has not furnished the blacks with natural capacity to understand anything except what appeals to their senses. In all that does so, they are quite equal to most races in intelligence, but go beyond that, attempt to explain to them any subject that requires an effort of the reflective faculties to understand, and they are totally incapable of making it. I say all this in sorrow, for I like the natives, and esteem them for their many good qualities. Few have had more opportunities for knowing them intimately, for in my youthful days I was thrown much amongst them, in a country that was then the remote interior, and contained many blacks and very few whites. I have journeyed with them, camped with them, partaken of their fare when very little else was to be had, and at one time I spoke one of their numerous dialects with tolerable fluency. During the whole of my residence in the colonies I have seen much of them, 
and i am not conscious of the least lurking prejudice against them but truth is great and impels me to say what i have said in answer to those who allege that we are robbing of their country and exterminating an interesting and improvable race and not doing enough for their civilization and conversion sir i say these charges are unjust it cannot be intended that the vast expanse of glorious country should for ever be reserved to the uses of a few scattered wanderers while in the old countries men are treading each other into the mire for want of space gladstone has latterly been receiving many flattering attentions from the gentlemen of the press and there is hardly one of the illustrated australian weeklies which has not given a page of engravings accompanied by a descriptive article on the charming little city by the shores of port curtis mr f w ward the editor of the brisbane courier who recently went on a journalistic cruise along the coast of queensland was particularly struck by the number of gladstonian friends and prophets he encountered Quote, on the ships he remarks one is sure to meet queenslanders who are enthusiastic about the future of gladstone a second journalistic observer predicts that quote, the next decade will be sure to witness marvellous changes in the port curtis district End quote. A representative of the Queenslander, who recently visited Gladstone, describes it as the most charming seaport on the whole coast of the colony. Quote, Possessed of a harbour, he writes, which has only one rival in all Australia, and which has the most valuable requisites for the development of a great shipping trade, with tens of thousands of acres of rich grasslands, with timber resources, with mineral areas which are just beginning to be placed under the pressure of prosperous development, and with soil prolific of grains grasses and fruits it is a marvellous puzzle why gladstone has not long since risen to the dignity of a large commercial manufacturing and seaport city that nature has intended it to be such i am convinced and the artificial barriers which have retarded its progress and the proper development of its magnificent possibilities must some day be swept aside and destroyed gladstone is looking wistfully and hopefully forward to the time when it will be connected by rail with the south and when from mast-tops in the harbour the flags of many nations will be flying the shipping of queensland coast is yet in its infancy and gladstone harbour presents a prospective commercial prominence that some day will develop enormously and attain an international as well as a colonial eminence End quote. extensive frozen meatworks have lately been erected in gladstone a local company has been formed to develop this rapidly growing industry and gladstone is already one of the chief centres of the trade End of chapter 15. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.